We are currently in a series titled The Wonder of God Made Known Through the Church. The Wonder of God Made Known Through the Church. We get this from Ephesians where Paul is unpacking to the church in Ephesus that God could have revealed his manifold wisdom in any way. He's God. He could have chosen any way to reveal his manifold wisdom to the world and to the heavenly places, but he chose to do so through the church. And so as we grow and as we seek to multiply, um, we have to ask the question, so what does that then look like? If we want to display the wonder of God, not only to our city, but beyond, then, then what are some key things that we need to unpack, talk about, and then begin to put in place so that we might be the church that God has called us to? Now, there's a number of things that we could talk about. A number of things. And so we've chosen a few uh, that we feel that this is kind of where we are. This is the season that we are in and, and find it necessary then to begin to unpack that. And so the first week we looked at preaching. Uh, we believe that God has chosen uh, the preaching of his word as a strong vehicle to make his will known to the world. Uh, last week we looked at discipleship. It's one of our values that as the gospel transforms the individual lives of people, that we would see a multiplying effect of that. We are given the great commission, not the great suggestion. We should not treat it as if it's a suggestion. It is the great commission that he gives by grace to those who have crossed the line of faith and says, come and participate in what I am doing and how I am reaching the world. And so this morning, we're going to talk about a challenging one, one that I know many of you wrestle with. Uh, it's almost as uncomfortable as money. And so uh, I want to prepare you by saying you need to put on your seatbelts uh, and just get ready. Uh, in preparing for our time this morning, I looked at a number of passages. And so we're going to look at at least 70 uh, verses, at least. Some of them we'll put up on the screen and we'll read together. Uh, some I will just read, they won't be up on the screen, and then uh, many of them I will just give you the address uh, so that you can be a good Berean, like Paul mentions in the book of Acts, where he was encouraged by them in that they didn't just listen to what he was saying, but they were like, you guys are amazing because you go home and you unpack the scriptures and look for yourself so that you can hold Paul accountable. To say that, listen, what he is saying is in line with God's word. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you, and I, I want you to do this every week, not just this morning, but every week, to be a good Berean. To maybe take down some notes or, or go and listen to the message during the week and open up the scriptures for yourself and wrestle with it and say, Holy Spirit, uh, I want to see what it is that you have for me. All right, so we're going to look at at least 70 uh, passages of Scripture because this morning we're going to talk about membership. You guys went super quiet on that one. We're going to talk about membership. Um, and so this morning is going to be uh, slightly more teaching than preaching. Uh, I will still preach. Uh, I believe there will still be uh, elements of preaching. I want to herald God's word. But it'll be more teaching as I try to unpack the different parts in Scripture that point us to membership. And so uh, if I was to title our time this morning, I would call it Membership Matters Because Sanctification Matters. Membership Matters Because Sanctification Matters. And I'll get into that in a moment. But before we jump in, permit me to pray. I'm going to pray for you. I ask that you pray for me, that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here this very morning. And so, Father, we come now asking uh, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word. Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts, uh, that I acknowledge that we are unpacking something that for many might be something that we don't want to talk about we find uncomfortable, especially in the church, maybe because of abuse or uh, we've had a really bad experience of it, or maybe we just, we, we don't trust uh, what the church wants to present when talking about membership. And so Lord, I, I ask that for this moment, we would be still enough so that we might hear you and then go and wrestle with what you say in and through your word. God, we are in desperate need of you. And so, Holy Spirit, would you move through this place like a rushing wind? 
Lord, I pray against any distractions here this morning. I pray against the evil one whose desires are to steal, kill, and destroy, to sow seeds of doubt and division. Lord, I ask that you would come and give life and life to the full. Lord, you would use me as an instrument in your hand. And so, Lord, it's to that end that I ask that you stand in my body, think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. God, you are our king. You are our redeemer. Would you have your way in this place? We ask all of this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Now, I must start, when talking about membership, I must start by saying that there is not an explicit text in the Bible that says you must become a member of a local church. That verse does not exist. I wish it did. I really do, because it would make my work a lot easier. But I must be upfront with you. It does not exist. Now, having said that, I believe, hear this, I believe there is enough biblical commanding occurring in the scriptures that leaves no doubt that obedience to God and obedience to the word of God demands, not suggests, but demands that if you are a Christian, you should become a member of a local church. Something that is more robust than the casual attendance on a weekend. So perhaps a better way to engage over the issue of membership, seeing as I have been up front that there is no, uh, thus says the Lord, you must be a member of a local church. Perhaps a better way to engage over this issue is to ask what was the value in the scriptures from our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, what was the value that they were trying to uphold? How did they do it? And then how do we take that same value and apply it? Does that make sense? We must ask, what is the value that they were trying to uphold? How did they do it? And how do we take that same value and then apply it today? Now, having searching through the scriptures, there's so much there that points, that points to, to us becoming, if you've crossed the line of faith, to us becoming a member of a local church. But, but I'm going to only talk about two. For the sake of time, I'm only going to talk about two. I believe that the value back then for membership, the value back then was, number one, to document the number of people who came to Christ and who attended the local gatherings. All right, that's the first one to document the number of people who came to Christ and who attended the local gatherings. And then the second value is to ensure that those who had come to Christ were growing healthily in their relationship with God and His bride. And so we're going to look at those two this morning. We're going to unpack them and see if the scriptures are true of this. And then we'll chat a little bit about what that means for us. And so let's start with the first one. To document the number of people who became followers of Jesus Christ and attended the local gatherings. To show this, let me start. That on the day of Pentecost, we see this in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel and told the people to be baptized. So he preaches the gospel, the very word of God, and then God moves through their hearts, and then these people come to faith. They come to Christ. And so he says, then be baptized. And then in Acts 2, verse 41, we see it is written that 3,000 people were added to them. That the life of the church wasn't just a matter of come when you can, but there was defined recognition of people, of groups of people who had now believed. This was documented for us to see that they were baptized and that they were part of a number. It was documented. Those Christians didn't just know each other. The early Christians, our brothers and sisters, did intentional life together. They attended the temple together. Acts 2 verse 46 tells us this. And as more and more people were added to that number. It documents it. More people were added to this number. But this continues. It continues so much so that by Acts 
chapter 4, verse 4, the number had risen to 5,000. It had risen to 5,000. And that's just counting the men because that was the custom back then. And so I believe that, that women and children were also coming to faith. This was documented. And it wasn't just a lifeless administrative reality. A name on a spreadsheet that existed somewhere in a computer in someone's office. It wasn't that. Acts 2 verse 32 informs us that those who were being added to this particular number were of one heart and mind. They were of one heart and mind. That this was intentional. This documentation of people coming to Christ was helpful. It allowed the leaders to create sublists. And so you're documenting the people coming to faith, and then you're also creating sublists of those that are coming. This was helpful to the leaders. Why? To better care for the gathered children of God. It was to make sure that they can care for those who had come to faith, for, for those who were gathering to take care of the children of God. But we'll get to that in a moment. Remember, we're still uh, making the point that they documented. They documented those coming to Christ and those who were a part of the gathering. I mentioned that there were sublists. These sublists included widows. Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 7. And then again, we see it in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3 to 16, where, where Paul gives instruction to Timothy and saying, listen, when the, the gathered children of God show up, take account of them and then create these sublists. And in that sublist, they, you must mention widows. You must create a space for widows. Let me read 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9. It says, now widows... now." No, no, he says, no widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she is at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for her good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Now, there's a lot in there that we could spend some time unpacking, but what I want us to notice is here in verse 9, where Paul writes, no widow is to be enrolled on the list. That there was a list, there was documentation of folks who had come to Christ and were gathering. One could make a case that there was also a sublist for orphans and for those who were afflicted. We see this in James chapter 1, verse 27, where James writes, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unstained from the world. How, how do you know who are the widows and the orphans in our midst? Especially as the gathering grows. How, how do you know that? Well, you, you document it. You document it. You have lists. I've been told here that there's a responsibility towards people explicitly. It's implied here. It's, it's implied here. But in order to be responsible to them, we must know who is present. How are, we to, how are we to be responsible if we have no idea who's here and, and what their needs are? And so we document it. But if you're still thinking, why a list? Right? You might be sitting here and going, but really, a list? Do we really need to have a list? Is, is this really proving the, the necessity to be a member of a local church? Why a list? Why document those who are coming to Christ? If you're asking that, uh, let me tell you, let me make it known to you that even God keeps a list. Even God keeps a list in the book of life. The apostle Paul addresses his fellow believers this way in Philippians chapter 4 verse 3. He says, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. God has a list. This tells us that, that Christians have their names written in the book of life. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 says, The one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life. 
but I will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus says to us that there is a book. And for those who've crossed the line of faith, your, your name is in that book. And then Jesus takes a step further. What comforting words. And he says, if your name is in that book, I will acknowledge you before my father. I will acknowledge you before my father. Why? Because your name is in the book. How, how do you get your name in the book? By trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. By looking to him as your Lord and Savior. By surrendering to him. By becoming a Christian. But Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 tells us more. This passage tells us that, that perseverance is essential to one who has his or her name written in the book of life. Let me read it to you again. It says, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes. This word conquers speaks of persevering. It speaks of persevering. That perseverance is essential to the one who has his or her name written in the book of life. That faithfulness to God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, is crucial to having one's name secure in God's kingdom. I know I'm saying some pretty big words. But what does that all mean? What does that all mean and how does it fit in this? And so permit me to unpack it. Perseverance. If perseverance is essential, then what does that mean? Perseverance may be defined as the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, by which the work of divine grace that has, that has begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. I'll read that to you again and I'll read it slowly. I believe it's up on the screen as well. Perseverance may be defined as the continuous operation, the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say you. It's of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that has begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It's perseverance. Now, now hear this. Salvation is necessary. Salvation is necessary. That is the coming to Jesus. This is what the, the saints of old, this is what the scriptures refer to as justification. Big word justification, that you are justified. When you come to Jesus, he justifies you. He sees you as if you had never sinned. You are justified. But then perseverance is required. Uh, maybe another way to say it is, is, how do I know that I have been justified? Well, it's because I persevere until the end. That I continue until the end. That is how I know that I have been justified. It's through perseverance. And so salvation matters, absolutely. But how does one know he or she has salvation? They will persevere until the end. You will persevere until the end. If you have received the gift of grace, how do you know? Well, I will persevere till the end. But let me explain. It says in Philippians 1.6, all who have come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, all who have crossed the line of faith, have eternal security. That we are given eternal security. And because you have this eternal security, then therefore you will persevere. The biblical teaching of the perseverance of the saints is anchored, like I just mentioned now, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says, I am sure of this. This is Paul writing. Hear the certainty in his words. I am sure of this, that he who has started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There is that security of salvation, but then he says he will continue it. He will continue it, that there is perseverance, that there is endurance until the day of Christ Jesus until he returns. But, but those are Paul's words. Maybe you prefer Jesus' words. And so listen in John chapter 6, verse 37, where Jesus says, Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. 
And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. I will never cast out. There is surety again. Again, he says it in verse 39 of the same chapter. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. This is Jesus saying that those who God has given, whose names are in the book of life, they shall never be lost. But there is surety there that we can anchor ourselves in this. And, and again, how, how, how do we know? How, how can you sit here and go, but, but how do I know? It's because you persevere. Is that you endure. Is that you continue. And so beyond the concept of perseverance in regard to salvation, there are biblical encouragement, exhortations to persevere in the Christian life, to, to continue in the Christian life. In his pastoral letters to Timothy, the Apostle Paul reminds the young pastor, he says to him, pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Can you hear the benefit of persevering? And that in this, you, you, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy's character was that of a godly man. And his doctrine, his teaching was, was considered sound and biblical. Paul then warned him to watch both of them carefully. And then he tells them to persevere in them. To continue in them. This is a warning for all of us. For all of us who who call on the name of Jesus. This is a warning for all of us that we are to watch our lives carefully and to watch our teaching. To persevere in both of these. Perseverance in godly living and believing the truth always accompanies genuine salvation. How do you know if someone is saved? Well, they persevere in godly living and in sound teaching. That's how you know. You can watch the life of someone and go, well, they, they, they are saved. They have trusted in Jesus. How? Look at how they persevere in their godly living. Look how they persevere in their sound and biblical teaching, despite what the world is saying. The, the world is just becoming more and more hostile to what we believe. On how we understand marriage, sexuality, money. And so for those who have received salvation, in the midst of that hostility, they persevere. They continue. And so Paul warns, Timothy, Paul warns us. John 8, verse 31. Then, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Let's read that in reverse. How do I know that we are really your disciples? If we continue in your word. Again, it speaks of perseverance. Further encouragements to persevere in the Christian life come from James. Who warns us in James chapter 1 verse 22 to 24. We've just come out of the book of James and so this should be a refresher to you. James writes, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it. And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of works. This person will be blessed in what he does. The, the sense here is that the, the Christian who perseveres in godliness and in spiritual disciplines will be blessed in the very act of persevering. The more we persevere in the Christian life, the more grants his blessings upon us. Therefore, enabling us to continue to persevere. I, I know it sounds like it's, it's feeding on itself, 
Because it is. He's saying that if you continue to come to me, if you remain in me, then you will persevere. And if you want to continue to persevere, then remain in me. Continue in me. Now all this talk about persevering, right? We're saying a lot about persevering. The scriptures are saying a lot about persevering. Now remember, we're trying to make the point for why we believe local membership is necessary. It was to document those who had come to faith and those who were gathering. By talking about perseverance, I'm saying that those who were gathering were persevering. They were persevering. And so all this talk now about persevering, how do you know if you are truly persevering? I know we've mentioned it a little bit, but let's, let's ask the question. Let's be frank. How, how do I know if I'm truly persevering? To answer this question, permit me to ask and answer the old but effective question of how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. One bite at a time. I, I love the passage that, that Meryl read to us in the call to worship. Those with unveiled faces. Those whose eyes have now been opened. Those who have now crossed the line of faith. Those who see Jesus for who he truly is. What goes on to say that he will transform you. He will transform you. I'm paraphrasing it here. He, he will mold you and shape you to become more and more like him from one degree of glory to another. I read that and I find it incredibly comforting because it's from one degree to another. It's, it's almost, it's continual, but it's, it's step by step in, in that what, what the text is not saying is that you come to Christ and then you're perfect. You become a Christian, now you're perfect. Everything you do must be done perfectly. Your marriage must be perfect. The, the way you handle your relationships must be perfect. The way you serve must be perfect. The, how you see your money must be perfect. Your eating habits, perfect. Now it says, from one degree of glory to the next. And if you're like me, I come to, to faith in 2004. In the, the first two years, guys, I was on fire. I was dropping sin like folks dropping the mic. Like it was just like, no, don't need that. Don't need that. Don't need that. It was great. I was praying all the time. I would wake up and, and be in the word. Then I would go to class. I would study. I'd make sure I was done everything by five o'clock. Why? Because I wanted to go back to the, the dorm so I can share my faith with people who don't know Jesus. I would spend the evening just walking through the corridors, building relationships. Guys, I was on fire. I was like, is this a Christian life? Man, this is great. This is so easy. And then year three, year four, year five, I started dating, and I got married, and I had kids. You slowly recognize this isn't as easy as I thought. And I'm not as patient as I thought I was. I'm not as loving as I thought I was. I'm not as gracious as I thought I was. And yet God says, I know, remain in me. Remain in me. Continue in me. Remain in my word. I'll continue to mold you step by step. From one degree to the next. And so how do you know you're truly persevering? Watch your life. Is there growth? It's slow, but is there growth? If you remain in the faith regularly, continually then you are persevering. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 from verse 21 to 23, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain, if indeed you remain, grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that is heard. Well, then writes there, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. But it's the word remain that I want us to focus on this morning. He says, if indeed you remain, in the Greek, epimeno, 
which means to stay, to continue, to persist, to continue in a certain state. If you remain. But now where did Paul get this word? I'll give you the answer from Jesus. He got it from Jesus in John chapter 15. A well-known passage if you've been in the church for a while. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. You are already clean. You have received salvation. You are cleansed. You, you're in. You have been justified. And so because this is true, watch what he says next. Verse 4. Remain. Remain. Continue. Persist. Stay. He says, remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burnt. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Now Jesus uses the illustration of the vine and the branches because he wants us to understand that being a Christian requires growth. It requires growth, growth that produces fruit. And if we read the scriptures long enough, we would see that the greatest fruit we can gain is to become more and more like Christ. That is the greatest fruit that we can gain. It's, it's not the new car, it's not the new house. It's not the new investment portfolio. It's not the, the next up-level PhD masters. While all those things are fantastic and great and unbelievable gifts from God to you, the greatest fruit that we can bear is to become more and more like Christ. It's to progressively become more and more like Christ every day, becoming more and more like Christ Friends, this is what we call sanctification. This is what we call sanctification. Now, the generic, generic meaning of sanctification is the state of proper functioning. To, set, to sanctify someone or something is to set that person or thing apart for the use intended by its designer. Let me uh, explain. A pen is sanctified when it is used to write. Uh, glasses are sanctified when they are used for sight. A branch is sanctified when it bears fruit. In the theological sense, things are sanctified when they are used for the purpose that God has intended for them. A human being is, in, is sanctified, therefore, when he or she lives according to God's beautiful design and purpose. Sanctification. To progressively become more and more like Christ, the way that you were designed to be sanctified. Salvation speaks of rebirth, that you are born again. That's that some of the language that we hear in the church, that you are born again. This is salvation. Sanctification speaks of growth, that you are growing, that you're becoming like Christ. You're growing in the fruit of the Spirit. But how do you know that you are growing in a healthy way? How do you know that the process of sanctification is occurring? This brings us to our second value that the people of God upheld, which I want to use to advocate for membership in the local church. Now let's just get our bearings. I told you this is going to come to you more teaching than preaching, but I'm hoping that it's, it's helpful. And everyone is still with me, right? Seatbelt's still on. We haven't lost anyone. Remember, we started by saying that one of the values that they upheld that points to membership in the local church was to document those who were coming to Christ and those who were gathering. They even created sublists 
The second value is so that they could care for those that for those who were gathering, to make sure that they are growing, that they are being sanctified, that they are becoming more and more like Christ. It wasn't just for the sake of showing up. I said this a couple of weeks ago that I know that for many of us, maybe we've been in churches where it's all about bums on the seats. How many people are here? This is epic because we can put this on the pamphlet and show people that we're killing it. And while all of that is necessary and good, and I'm more concerned about getting bums in the kingdom of God. And as we get folks in the kingdom of God, then surely they'll fill the seats. But our concern should be the kingdom of God. And so those who gather, those who are children of God, is to make sure that they persevere, is to make sure that they're continuing to grow. And so our second point advocating for local membership, is to ensure that those who had come to Christ were growing healthily in their relationship with God and His bride. I want to make the point that healthy membership aids in healthy growing. We saw this last week where Reno preached on discipleship, unpacked the golden nuggets of discipleship and how we do it here. The, the purpose of that, one, it's, it's a command. God gives it to us. But, but the, the, secondly is to make sure that people are growing. That's why we do discipleship. That's why we believe in it. It's so that people would continue to grow in their relationship with God. A couple of weeks from now, John is going to talk about mission. That God calls us to mission. And that this as well is, is, is that we grow. We're growing as Christians when we are on mission. And so much has already been said and more will be said uh, uh, advocating that healthy membership aids in healthy growth. But I would like to take some time, briefly, to chat about your spiritual well-being and how that is necessary for your growth and how local membership is paramount in aiding in all of this. I'll say it again. I want to talk a little bit about your spiritual well-being and how that is necessary for your growth and how local membership is paramount in aiding in all of this. So let's chat a little bit about spiritual well-being. Let me say this to you. Let me throw it out. It'll come as a shock to you, but stay with me. The worst thing that can happen to a Christian is not persecution. It is not physical injury. It's not even death. That is not the worst thing that can happen to a Christian. In fact, in many respects, these are often some of the best things that can happen to us. Let me explain. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Paul says this. He takes pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and hardships. And he does all of this. He takes pleasure in all of this for Christ's sake. Because he says, for when I am weak, you guys know it. For when I am weak, then I am strong. James says in chapter 1, verse 2, consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. I mean, this is insane, but it's here in the text. Consider it great joy. When you experience various, various trials. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, endurance. Jesus said to his followers, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body. And after that can do nothing more. This makes perfect sense. Because for the believer, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so none of these earthly threats should hold any sway over us whatsoever. But there is one thing that should make us tremble. It's not persecution, it's not physical injury, it's not death. There is one thing that should make us tremble, and that is the possibility of being overtaken by sin. Sin is what Christ suffered on the cross for. Sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Sin in the life of a true believer, invites the discipline of the Father. Sin is serious. Here's why sin is serious. Because sin's desire is to completely destroy you. 
It's not to make friends with you. It's not to just hang out. Sin's desire is to completely destroy you. Now, I know as Christians, we must acknowledge that we are involved in a battle. The war is won. We declare that with great victory. The war is won. But we're still in a battle. And this battle will continue until Jesus returns. Our enemy is Satan, who is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. And the way in which he devours unguarded, careless, gullible, naive people is by tempting them to sin. By convincing them that, the, that sin is more a, a rewarding master than Christ. And so therefore, he disguises himself and his agents and, and makes the pleasures of sin appear more appealing to us. And Satan does not just attack us from the front. He doesn't just present these to us from the front where we can visibly see them, but he attacks from every side, from every angle. So how much better would it be then to have spiritual eyes in the back of our heads? If we did, we could see the schemes of the devil much more clearly. What I'm trying to tell you is that we need help. I need help. And that is precisely the purpose of the local church. The fellow Christians to whom we unite ourselves in relationship for accountability is to have that protection. That is why we are told to encourage each other daily. This is something I fall short of. To encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 13. In Hebrews chapter 10, we are told to watch out for one another, to provoke love and good works. See, these passages all speak of the fellowship of the local church as a preventative measure, as means of restraining one another from sin. Never in the New Testament, in fact, never in the Scriptures, in all of Scripture, are we told that we are, as Christians, just to tough it out. Come on, man, just tough it out. We don't see that anywhere. We were never created for isolation. We were never created to live on our own and tough it out. We were made for fellowship. And we were made to do this in a, in a meaningful, intentional way, to do life with one another. And this requires commitment. It requires commitment. The 59 one another's that are scattered throughout the scriptures should be sufficient evidence for us. 59 one another's. I had them here and I was going to read them, but, but for the sake of time, I won't. They are 59 one another's. Love one another. Accept one another. Forgive one another. Trust one another. Instruct one another. That should be sufficient evidence to go, hey, I think I'm supposed to be in community. I'm not meant to live in isolation. We are not called to live the Christian life apart from the protection and care and accountability of the local church. The fellowship of a group of committed believers is vital to our spiritual health and to our persevering in the faith. The local church in the midst of this challenging, tempting, moral decaying, broken world is just as important for our survival as the ark was to Noah and his family. They simply would not have survived without it. And so, friends, I can't labor more on this point. I can't. And if you have not heard my pastoral heart, hear it now. Hear it now. I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with your heart. Would you engage in this? Would you consider it? Would you meaningfully consider it to go, guys, if I am to survive out here, then, then I, need, I need people around me, committed people around me, loving me, serving me, caring for me providing accountability to me. I want you to be in a, in a place where you are known and loved. Not where you're in a number on a spreadsheet somewhere. 
We don't need that. Maybe the Comrades Marathon has that and it's great. Hashtag no shade. Maybe, I don't know, like, do we still have Groupon? No? Maybe some internet database needs that and that's great. But if you're a Christian, you need more than that. You need to be in a place where you are known, where you are loved, and where you will be served. Loved enough not only to serve you, but hear this, to call you out when you are heading in the wrong direction. I have enough people who sing my praises. I'm good on that. I need people who will love me enough to call me out when I'm heading in the wrong direction. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Paul here describes a rescue mission. I want you to see that. Let me paint a picture for us. Paul describes a rescue mission. A soldier is is down behind enemy lines, having been wounded by the, the enemy's gunfire. And those who are able are to carefully, yet courageously, courageously rescue him or her. Paul is not describing a heartless, insensitive, or prideful rebuke. He doesn't want us to ridicule the soldier for getting him or herself shot. It's not a, oh, thanks, bud, great, now we have to go do this thing. What were you doing? How stupid. As much as you may want to say that. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not what he's saying here. Paul wants us to do so gently, cautiously, to to pull this wounded soldier back to safety. Back to safety, watching that we ourselves don't get shot by the sniper. In this context, the the lone soldier, the, the one who went out on their own, apart from the protection of his or her unit, has no chance of survival. We have to see it this way. If we're going to be serious about persevering to the end, then we have to see it this way. So likewise, when a person who says that his or her Christianity is a private thing, and I hear that often, my faith, it's a a private thing, and I, I somewhat get what you're saying, but I'm always waiting for more. If you say, my faith is a private thing, full stop, then you've missed, you've missed the, the beauty of the gospel and how God has created us. But to say, no, my faith is a private thing. There's this thing that happens between me and the Father that I am reconciled back to the Father, and then by implication, I am reconciled to others around me. Well, then you get it. And so for those who say, my Christianity is a private thing, you will notice that when they are overcome by sin, and then when there's no one there to rescue them, either because they don't want people to rescue them, or maybe the, the community just hasn't understood that this is what we are called to, then they simply withdraw from the local church. They simply withdraw. And because we are spoiled for choice, we treat the church like a spiritual buffet. It's like, well, I want to do my own thing, and people are trying to call me out, and oh, well, now I'll just stop coming. And then after a while, if you're like, but I really do need community. So let me go down to the church, just down the road, down the corner, start afresh. But because you haven't dealt with that sin, it comes with you. And then you do the very same thing there that you did here. And then you're like, you know what? Guys, stop confronting me. This is a private thing. It's between me and God. This is none of your business. But hopefully you'd be in a community that presses in. Encourage one another daily. A community that presses in and then you're like, you get to that point where it's like, I either need to give in to how God has beautifully made us or I go, I'm rejecting you, God, and I'm going to continue doing my own thing. And then I'll just stop going to the gathering or just go find another church down the road. Dragging my sin with me. 
Friends, I've been a Christian for 14 years now. Calculated it the other day. 14 years. And I have way too many. Way too many stories of men and women who were on fire for Jesus. Then I watched them drift away from the warmth of Jesus. And then isolate themselves. And then wither away, wither away in the cold, dark wilderness of this broken world. I have way too many stories. And I'm not talking about, I know someone who knows someone who knows someone. No, I know someone when we gathered and we would pray together on fire for Jesus. And I was just like, I'm so excited about what God is doing in and through your life. He's going to do amazing things. And then be tripped up by sin and not, not willing to listen to loving brothers and sisters. Not willing to wrestle through the scriptures and say, what is God saying about what I'm doing here? And so they just leave. And so even today, we continue to pray for them. I continue to pray for them. Their hearts would be soft enough that they would hear the voice of God. They would hear the voice of God through his people. And that they would return. Friends, membership matters. Membership matters because sanctification matters. Your sanctification matters. Your persevering matters. Your remaining matters. So I guess I'm asking you to help us help you. And as you help us help you, you help us be better. I'm crying out to you. I'm pleading with you. I'm begging you. The worst thing, the worst thing for us to do is to one day talk about some of you and say, remember once upon a time. Remember when they were oh, on fire for the Lord. What now? What now? Membership matters because your sanctification matters. And so, we here at Rooted Fellowship, we believe in membership. We believe in membership to a local church. And so as we grow, both numerically and spiritually, I believe we must begin to apply this. We are to be obedient to what God calls us to, and so we must begin to apply this. And so we're looking, we're looking to roll out membership here at Rooted Fellowship. That's the big application. In the next few months, we're looking to roll out membership here at Rooted Fellowship. And we'll keep you posted as we kind of navigate through this. We want to be sensitive and careful. We want to listen to the Holy Spirit and be guided by Him. But, but let me say this. It might be comforting to some of you. For folks who have been here for a while, if you've been at Rooted for a while, and, and I've, I've heard these words come out of some of y'all's mouths, so, and you call this place home, you're plugged in, I want you to know that not too much is going to change. I'm being for real. Not too much will change. Maybe a little bit here, a little bit there, but most of it will be the same. But I want to put it out there. I want to let you know that in these next few months, we're looking at rolling out local membership. What will it encompass? What will it mean? Well, let me give you, uh, and I'm going to land the plane here. Let me give you uh, six things that, that I think, this is what local membership at Rooted will communicate. And I really do believe most of you will amen this. If you commit to being a member at Rooted, you, in relationship with others, will be saying, number one, I recognize that the local church, who is a local expression of the universal church, is of high value to God and my sanctification. You'll be agreeing to that. You'll be recognizing that Jesus died for his bride. Number two, Remember, in relationship with others, you'll be saying, I am committed to the future of Rooted Fellowship and her people and her mission. What you'll be saying is, I'm in. I'm committed. I'm, I'm, I'm in. I'm committed to, to what God is doing here. Remember, guys, the church is not the school hall. This is just a school hall, a really cool one, but it's just a school hall. The church is us. It's you and me. It's those who've crossed the line of faith. And so, and so you're saying, I'm committed to the future of us and to the mission that God has called us to. I'm in. 
Number three, you're saying I'm committed to serving, giving, attending, and engaging at Rooted Fellowship. This is the one that trips people up. Trust me, we're not going to have a roll call list at the door there going, okay, so-and-so here, so-and-so here, so-and-so here. Did you give? We're not going to ask you to put your name on uh, the debit order. Like, We'll never ask you guys to do that, ever. But we will encourage you to serve, to attend, to give, to engage. Some of you guys are already doing that, and it's great. And I'm so thankful for you. Uh, maybe for some of you, what you might be hearing is, uh, maybe they're asking me for a little more. I call this place home. I benefit from being a part of this family. God is doing some incredible things in and through me. How do I move from being just a consumer to now becoming a participator? Number four. I said the last one is one that trips people up. No, this is it. My life is under the authority of the local church. And I believe this to be beneficial for my thriving and flourishing as a Christian. This will require submitting yourself to your leaders. I told you it was a big one. It will require submitting to the authority of the local church. Now, now let me say a few things here. Because you might be pushing against this. Maybe you don't know that all of us are actually under authority. All of us. All of us are under authority. The question is, whose authority are you under? All of us are under someone or something's authority. The question is, are you, are you benefiting from being under that authority? And you might sit here and go, well, no, I'm, I'm not under any authority. Well, then I would say, I didn't know that you were the joker. No? No, no one? The dark knight? No? Okay, cool. Some of y'all got it. The Joker in the movie The Dark Knight believed that he was under no authority. And so the only thing that he brought was anarchy. And so if you're saying you, you are under no authority, then we need to have a conversation. We need to begin to look at your life. Because I, I want to believe, I'm confident enough to say, I believe that there's chaos there. And so when talking about authority at the local church, we're ultimately asking the question, if you're going, oh, I don't know about that, my question to you is, is, and it's a fair question, I'm not trying to be funny, it's asking, well, do you trust me? As a leader of, one of the leaders here at the church, uh, let me press in a little bit, do you trust us? And so Stephen and myself are, are elders here at the local church. If you're going, well, what on earth is an elder? See you next week. All right, we'll unpack that next week. But for now, it's a question of, do you trust me? Do you trust us? Do you, do you trust us to open up the scriptures and faithfully preach them? Do you, do you trust us to try to put you guys into community, meaningful community, where you will grow and thrive and flourish? Do you trust us enough to go, hey, let's have some one-on-ones because I want to pour into you. I want to build you. I want to mold you. I want to shape you. I want you to be the best that, that God has called you to be. Do, do you trust us to do that? And you might sit here and go, no. And that's legit. But then my response to you would be, look, I know you love coming here and it's pretty cool and Sing songs in five languages, that's great. But, man, you need to be in a community where you are willing to submit to the authority there. Can I help you find that church? Why? Because your sanctification matters. I love you enough to say that. Your sanctification matters. But we'll talk more about that next week. Number five... If I'm saying I want to be a member of Rooted Fellowship, what I'm saying in relationship with others is I want to partner with the leadership. And then here in brackets I put and elders, right? Why am I separating those two? Again, see you next week. I want to partner with the leadership and elders of Rooted Fellowship to support them and be supported by them. Guys, I want to pour into you. I really do. But as we continue to grow, it just becomes harder for me to do that as an individual. And so I don't want to fail you. And so I'm like, let's try to put some structures together to make sure that every single person who calls Rooted Fellowship home is being poured into. Why? So that you can become more and more like Christ. 
Friends, this is serious stuff. So you're agreeing to that. And then the last one is I want Rooted Fellowship to be my family. I want Rooted Fellowship to be my family. I wrote here, this means that I can inconvenience you as a family member. And that also means that you can inconvenience me. That's what it means to be a family member, is to be inconvenienced, not abused. Some of y'all are going, yes, I heard it. I'm at your house every day for lunch. No, no that's, not, that's not what I'm saying. But it's willing to be inconvenienced. That's what it means to be a family member. You guys know that. I know my brother, he pick up the phone. Yo, bro, I need you. Come pick me up. Bro, it's like one o'clock in the morning. Yeah, no, but I ended up at this place. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. I mean, it's going to end badly when I get there, but I'm going to come. We've got to understand, and I know some of you guys get it. You you understand blood family, and you love your blood family, and you should. Scripture is clear on that. You should. But but I think some of us don't quite understand our blood-bought family. Blood-bought family. And so when you say I'm part of a local church, you're recognizing this blood-bought family. And then you might be going, but what about my blood family? Well, your blood-bought family will gather around you, pray with you, try to serve you so that we can meaningfully engage your blood family, share the gospel with them, plead with the Lord to soften their hearts so that they might cross the line of faith so that they too may become your blood-bought family. Your sanctification matters. And so in these next couple of months, we're going to try to unroll that and try to make it clearer and clearer to you and, and in consultation with you, trusting that God truly has called us to this. And so next week, we'll act almost as a part two. We'll talk a little bit about how that practically works, and we're going to talk about the different roles of men and women. We'll talk about leadership, and so I know you definitely don't want to miss that. But much like this morning, it will be from the Scriptures. And then I will ask you, like I'm going to ask you now, to go and prayerfully wrestle and consider this. If you've been coming for three months, six months, maybe just hang out, get to know the family. Just get to know us a little bit. But if you've been here for more than that and you call this place home, I know it's tough, but you would go, yeah, okay, I'm going to wrestle, I'm going to pray. This matters because my sanctification matters. And so, Father, we come now asking that you would cause this deep wrestle within us. That we would prayerfully consider that maybe we would be like the Bereans that Paul talked so well of. Those who heard the message but went home and unpacked the scriptures for themselves and said, okay, I want to see this for myself, but I want to see it with with an unveiled face. And so God, would you Would you move through your people? God, I believe ultimately this is about surrendering. This is about surrendering. I mean, there's a lot that I have read here this morning that I myself twitch when I hear. There are things that I just don't know. They leave me doubting a little bit. But if I'm honest with myself, it's ultimately about surrendering. Am I willing to surrender my life to you? Am I willing to come before you with my hands open and saying, would your word cleanse me? Would it remain in me? Would it continue? Would it it allow me to grow, to become more and more like you? That our salvation Our rebirth, our salvation leads to our sanctification where we are set apart so that we might be used in the way that we were intended to be used. And all of this leads to glorification. The pinnacle of it all. That one day Jesus will return. 
And he will read all of those whose names are in the book of life. He will acknowledge us before his father and the angels. And this will bring great glory to the father. And that we get to share in that glory. And so our salvation leads to our sanctification. It leads to our glorification. Ah, oh, these are beautiful words. Let them be true. As we now surrender all of our lives to you. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray.